So everybody else that's left, all you adults and uh, youth, you can go ahead and take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 37. We're going to be looking at the life of Joseph this morning. Um, Joseph is entering the scene. And, and so what we're going to see is as, as, we've, as we've gone through Genesis, we started with Adam and Eve and we saw how from Adam and Eve, it got passed down to the next generations. And then, then Noah was the next uh, main figure to come on the scene. And we see God's covenant of salvation uh, demonstrated through Noah and, and the giving of the ark. Everything, everyone that didn't believe was destroyed, but through the ark, God provided a way of salvation. And then we go from Noah and we get to Abraham. And God makes this spectacular and marvelous promise to Abraham that from his descendants would come the one that would bless all the world and that his descendants would would outnumber all the stars. And then to Abraham, in his old age, was given a son, Isaac. To Isaac was given two sons, Esau and Jacob. To Jacob, the promise, as we looked at last week, was made and he became Israel. And through him, the blessing of God would be displayed. And Jacob, Israel, is given 12 sons. And today we're going to start focusing on the dreamer, on Joseph, because from here, the main focus of Genesis carries on the back of Joseph, God's plan to redeem, God's plan to save. So we find this starting in Genesis chapter 37, verse 1. Israel lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. And these were the generations of Israel. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them of, uh, excuse me, or bad report of them to their father. But Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the other brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. But Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to him, I want you to hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brother said to him, Are you indeed saying that you are to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more because of his dreams and his words. Then Joseph dreamed another dream and told it to his brother saying, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. The sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow ourselves to you before the ground? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are a good, kind, gracious, and loving father. 
That all that we have in this world is because of your generous and gracious hand. All that we need is supplied by you. Our God will supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Not according to what we think, not according to what we believe, not according to what we demand, but according to your riches and glory. So Father, we ask that you would bestow upon us the riches of of walking with you, the richness of our faith as we look to you, as we lift our eyes to our God and King, as we look at your word. Father, we love you and we ask all this in the name of Christ, amen. Joseph is one of those stories in scripture that I look at and say, surely he had to have gotten beat up a few times in his life. Man, here he is. The next to the youngest son, Benjamin is the youngest. Benjamin's the one that was born to Rachel as she, and she passed away giving birth. But Joseph here, it says that he is daddy's favorite. Now what better passage on Father's Day to look at than one where we're talking about daddy's favorites, right? <laughs> I see, I see. Right, if, you, if you're your dad's favorite, raise your hand. Yeah. So here's what I noticed just a second ago, that as hands went up, siblings in the room turned and shot this, <laughs> you must be kidding. That's kind of where Joseph is, except Israel had already put it out there. This one's my favorite. Now, now dads, we know that we're not supposed to have a favorite, but I hope that if you do have a favorite, you haven't told them. I hope that you haven't told. My sisters and I joke that my middle sister, Kelly, is dad's favorite. To date, he has never outright denied it, but he has never actually said, yes, she is the favorite. Now, I have a favorite eight-year-old, I have a favorite five-year-old, and I have a favorite almost two-year-old, and that's as far as I can go. Next year, I'll have a favorite nine-year-old, a favorite six-year-old, and a favorite almost three-year-old. I mean, that's just where we go. But in Jacob's house, in Israel's house, favoritism was the rule of the day. Favoritism ruled his house. Notice with me all the things that are playing into this dreamer, into this favoritism. It says there that Joseph was 17 years old and he pastured the flock with his brothers and he was uh, a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. In other words, Joseph went and he tattled on his big brothers. He went and told a, told a tale. Now, everybody that's had kids know what tattletales are, Right? If you've not had kids or do you work with kids, you know what Tattle says. Ah, oh, he hit me. Ah, oh, she looked at me funny. Um, when, when, when Addison, uh, this is one of our favorite memories of our kids. Um, when Addison was um, two years old, uh, Braden finished kindergarten. We went to Red Robin to celebrate that he finished kindergarten. This was just about three weeks before we moved here or before I started uh, pastoring here. And we went to Red Robin in Greenville, South Carolina. And at Red Robin, they'll give you a red balloon that's attached to a little stick that you can, you know, shake and hold or whatever. And, and so we're riding in the car and Addison's singing this song that she learned in preschool. I wiggle, 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 and I praise the Lord. I wiggle, 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 and I praise the Lord. And Christy's got this video that thanks to the advent of Facebook memories shows up every year around this time where there's a video of Addison sitting in the back 
backseat in her little thing, shaking her balloon, singing, wiggle, 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 and I praise the Lord. And you hear Braden say, ow, she's hitting me. It's a balloon. She's hitting me on purpose. And Addison stops and says, as you look in the video and see that she's intentionally shaking it at him, she stops. I'm singing wiggle. Tattletales, right? Whether it's being hit with a balloon or something serious, Joseph comes in and he tells a tale. And what does dad do? He gives him a multicolored robe. He pulls out the ornamentation and the lavishness. Favoritism rules. And then Joseph says, hey guys, I know you already don't like me, but let me tell you this dream I had. We're out there doing our business. We're working. We're gathering the sheaves. And guess who had the biggest and the best one? That was me. And guess what your sheaves did? They bowed down to me. Now, if you already have an issue with your brother because he's a little bit of a brat and you know that mom and dad prefer him over everybody else, is that going to help you love him more? Is that going to say, you know what, you're the best brother I've ever had. Come on in here and give me a hug. Let's go get a burger. Together. No! No! They speak ill to him. What, what are you trying to say? Are we going to bow down to you? Is that what you're trying to say? That we're going to worship you? That you're, we're going to serve you? That you're going to reign and rule over us? See, I grew up in a house where if I had told that to my sisters, I probably would have had my head stuck in the toilet and then it flushed. They call them swirlies. Yeah, it just doesn't go well. And Jacob comes back to him and says, guess what, guys? I had another dream. This one's bigger and better that the sun and the moon and 11 stars all bowed to me. Now Jacob's in on the conversation. And Jacob, are you saying that your mom and I and all your brothers, that, that all of us, that we're going to worship you? Is that what you're saying? That we're going to, you're in service? But notice the end of the passage says this. Verse 11 says, his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept this saying in mind. Jacob tucked it away in his heart. He tucked it away into the background and said, you know what? I'm going to see what happens with this boy. I, I, don't, I, I don't know as a dad what's going on in Jacob's heart and mind right now. We dream and aspire to big things for our kids. We, we want them to go out and, have a, and, and lead a better life than we led. We want them to, to, to have a better career. We want to provide opportunity for our children to do more, to, to, to be more. And, and maybe that's what Jacob's thinking. But because Joseph was the favorite I can just picture Joseph in his robe parading around like, yeah, I've already got the robe. You guys are going to be under me one day. And Jacob's thinking, what if? Well, I don't need to tell you much more than this, that it didn't really sit well with the brothers. The other 11 just didn't really like, like the idea of this too much. So... After Joseph dreams, his brothers sell him. Notice it says there in verse 11. His brother, excuse me, verse 12. His brothers went to their pasture uh, to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are your brothers not pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come and I will send you to them. So Joseph said, here I am. 
Israel says to Joseph, now go and see if it's well with your brothers in the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of the Hebron and he came to Shechem. A man found him wandering in the fields and the man asked him, what are you seeking? And he says, I am seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan, not not Alabama. Okay, we're not going to Alabama. Um, And Joseph went as far as his brother and found them at Dothan. But they saw him from afar. And before he came near, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And and we will see what will become of all of his dreams. That is a man-centered response, right? If I snuff you out right now, if I go ahead and do away with you, your dream to rule over me can't come true. And so in spite of the dreams that Jacob is having, his brothers well up with envy, with rage, with anger, and they say, it's not going to happen. We're going to kill him. But Reuben heard it, and he rescued Joseph out of their hands and said, Let's not kill him. Let's not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, cast him into this pit in the wilderness, but don't let a hand on him. Because Reuben was planning to rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and cast him into a pit. And the pit was empty with no water in it. And they sat down to eat. Looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it to Egypt. When Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it for us to kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, he is our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then the Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph out of the well, uh, out of the pit. They sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver and they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? They took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped his robe in his blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and, excuse me, they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether or not it is your son's robe. And he identified it saying, This is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him and torn him into pieces. And Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned his son for many days. All of his sons and all of his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son in mourning. And his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. See, we have the benefit of knowing kind of the rest of the story. We, we have heard sermons and Sunday school lessons and, and maybe even watched Veggie Tales about, about little Joe. 
And, and we know what happens to Joseph and how God is using. But in the moment, we can get caught in the narrative and see that everything is not going according to plan. God, your plan was to redeem through this family. But look at what's going on in this family. A father that, that loves this one son better than the others. This son that has these strange dreams about people worshiping and bowing down to him. And now the plot to kill, the plot to send him away. And they sell him as a servant to the Ishmaelites. And then lie to their father. And they bring it back and say, can you identify whether this is the robe you gave Joseph? The boys knew it was his robe. Even if they had found it in the ditch, they would have known it was his because it was a symbol that they were less than to their father. Maybe you have felt that way, that, that you were less than. Maybe, maybe your dad wasn't the best dad in the world. He wasn't going to be in any danger of... Uh, holding his world's greatest dad coffee mug in integrity and honesty of heart. Maybe he wasn't up for, can I just be real for a second? Maybe he had a really bad dad. It wasn't just that, you know, he was there, but kind of aloof, wasn't the most loving. Effect. Maybe he was just a bad guy. And, and you always struggled with that feeling of less than. Less than his job. Less than his other pursuits. Less than his car. Less than his stuff. Less than to him. And I'm not going to try to moralize the story and bring this allegory of, man, you know, the brothers of Joseph can relate to you. I want you to see what happens with a father's love through the story of Joseph. Because Joseph's brothers bring to the mind this idea that we can just kill him and get rid of him. Or Reuben says, you know what, I can't do that to dad. This is our brother, so we're just going to cast him in the pit. And Judah comes up with the great idea of, well, let's just make some money off of it. I mean, we could profit. He says, what profit is it to us to kill him? He's thinking financially, right? We could at least sell him. I mean, he's 17. He can go and work for somebody. So let's sell him as a slave. Let's sell him as a servant to these that are passing through. And in all of this, we're trying to keep in mind today the end of the story. But Joseph had to get to Egypt. He had to get to Potiphar's house. He had to become the second command because all of this was coming. And because we know the end of the story, we can come back to the love of the Father and today say, there are some things in my life that I don't understand, that I don't like, that seem to be derailing everything. But you know the end of the story. Christ Jesus wins. He's already won. He's already conquered death, hell, and the grave. He has already ushered in redemption. He has already... So even though you know where Joseph ends up, 
And that getting to Potiphar's house is the step in the story to get him to the place where God's going to demonstrate his power and glory. Where you sit today, maybe you feel that somebody has sold you out. Maybe you feel like you are less than, but here's what God is saying. I know the end of the story, what I have destined and planned for you. And guess what? It might be a hard road to get there, but it is the road towards his glory. So, so what do we do with this passage? What do we do with this, this dreamer who's been cast into a pit, this dreamer who, was, who, who, who brought on inferiority complexes and now is sold as a slave? One of the things we see is that times of evil and deceit do not undermine God's plan or design for redemption. Look at the deception that's going on here. We're going to kill him and tell dad that a bear ripped him to shreds. Okay, well, rather than us actually killing him, we're going to sell him. These are evil and dehumanizing traits that are creeping up in the sons of Israel. In the sons of God's chosen family. We've got to keep that in perspective. That there is an evil that lurks within and there is a legal, a, 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 an evil that creeps around and all of it weighs in this idea of deception. Oh, the deception that we would bring to our Father that we, though knowing we're guilty, can pin it on a wild animal. We can pin it on circumstance. We can pin it on whatever we choose but remain without the culpability of the crime in our father's eyes. That's vicious. That is wicked and that is evil. And in the moment of the passage that we're looking at today, we have to ask ourselves, how is God going to bring redemption out of this? How, how is God going to redeem this story? And that's where your life oftentimes finds itself. There is something that has happened to you. There is something that you have done yourself. And you have to ask, how is God going to redeem this? Can I just say to you this morning that our God is bigger than all of the evil and all of the deceit and all of the wickedness in the world today? In your life, in my life, in the lives of people in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your, in your social clubs. This past week, we were at the Southern Baptist Convention meetings in Birmingham. And um, it, was a, it was a great week. I will be the first to tell you, I have gone to some of these convention meetings and thought, you know what, that was a waste of my time. And realistically, up until like the last hour we were there, it didn't feel like the world's largest Baptist business meeting where everything was being nitpicked and why'd you word it this way? Up until the last hour, there were a couple of resolutions that I was like, really guys, you're gonna nitpick that? Come on, you couldn't just let the week go without some of that? But here's what's happened this week. A couple of major steps that we as a convention have taken. And, 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 and before I fully illuminate some of these I want you to say that in so many ways where our church our convention of churches is trying to go is where our church has already been 
It's, it's where our church currently is and what our church has already been doing. One of the major things, resolutions that we, that we came to this week, and, and, and one of the things that kind of came up was realizing that there has been a systematic function of racism in our churches. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. said it uh, 53 years, 56 years ago, that the most segregated hour of the week is 11 o'clock on Sunday. When we, the church, are to be the demonstration of the reconciliation of the gospel. Well, if you've been in our church for more than about four or five years, you can't really say that, can you? I mean, look around the room. Look around the room right now. Just peek around. We, we are not a monoethnic, monolithic church. We have a beautiful vibrance of cultural and racial diversity right here. And that's all to the glory of God. That's not to us, that's to God and to his name alone. But there has been a pattern within Southern Baptist churches that has stemmed towards racial profiling and racial issues. So much so um, that our, our Jay, you remember Jay that was here a couple of weeks ago? Our church plant partner in Baltimore, uh, Randy and I were sitting down talking with him uh, in April, and, and he was talking to us about a woman uh, that had been visiting their church. Um, you know, Jay, Jay is, is a black man from Baltimore. His wife is, uh, is a white woman from just right above Baltimore, and they've got this beautiful church that, they, that God has allowed them to plant right there that we're so happy to plant and, and work with. And, and so they're having one, a new member's lunch, um, kind of like what we do, and they've gone through some things, and it comes out in this new member's lunch that they're a Southern Baptist church. And Wednesday evening for their Bible study, a woman comes and, that had sat for, had been visiting for a few weeks and sat there through the new members lunch and she just unloads on Jay about, I can't believe we're a Southern Baptist church because they're, Southern Baptists are racist and they're this and they're this because of what the national spotlight has been. I'm just going to let you know. If you turn on Fox News and see Robert Jeffress, pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, he does not speak for me. Okay, I just want everybody out there to know that because he, he, he's a puppet in, in many ways. I'll call, I hope he watches this. He'll know. <laughs> Stream it online, Robert. Um, he, he's, he's a puppet for a political agenda. And that does not speak for who we are as a church. I do not speak solely for every individual because we're going to disagree on some things that ultimately don't really matter in the grand scheme of things because we bind ourselves together for the gospel. And so Jay sat down and just listened to this woman and said, but you, you met our people, right? Were, were they racist towards you? Did they love you? Did they, did they reach you? Did they, yeah, yeah. He said, this is who Southern Baptists are. Not what you've seen in the national spotlight. This on the ground. And that's where our church is. If you walk through our doors, one of the guarantees I want to be able to make to everyone is one, you won't walk away embarrassed by something dumb that I said or one of our staff members said. And two, that you know that you are genuinely welcome and loved here. If you walk in and walk out and you haven't been greeted by three or four people and they're genuinely, you can tell that they're genuinely glad that you're here, I want you to call me. My number is 864-556-2557. That is my cell phone number. Call me, 864-556-2557. 
Because I don't want that to be a hindrance. So, so, so one of the steps that we took this week as a Southern Baptist Convention is establishing what we would call a credentials committee that is going to evaluate through all of our 52,000 member churches and congregations. And, and if there has been a proclivity or a propensity towards racial bias within the church, then that is going to be grounds for disfellowship from the convention. It allows that church to maintain their autonomy, but it allows us as a convention to say, you know what, that's the gospel issue, and you're, you're, you're not seeking the reconciliation that Christ Jesus brought to us. Another regard is in sexual abuse. I don't have to go back over and tell you all of the cases of sexual abuse that have been publicly highlighted within the Southern Baptist Convention over the last three or four months. And they have all stemmed back over the last 25, 30, 40 years. We met a lady this week. We heard from a lady this week in a panel on sex abuse who, who grew up in, in Alabama. She is now um, a, a, a vice president with the medical school at Mercy University. Um, and she talked about how when she was a teenager, uh, 32 years ago, her youth pastor was abusing her. And, and over the course of a year and a half, she was subjected to this pattern and system of, of sexual abuse. And when she went and talked to her pastor about it, when the youth minister left, his response to her was, well, you can either tell me what he did or we can go in the back and you can show me what he did. And for five months, he picked up where the youth pastor left off. And it was hidden under the cloak of the gospel. And that pastor was removed from the church because it was found he was having an affair with one of the Sunday school teachers. But for 33 years, still pastored churches in the state of Alabama. The youth pastor continued as a student ministry leader in churches until he died. These are times of evil and deceit. But I stand to tell you that the, the steps that our convention took this week to say, this is going to be an area where if you have been complicit with sexual abuse and have not reported and not, have, have not complied with what, what we believe as a convention of churches, then you're out. These are times of evil and deceit, but that does not undo what Christ Jesus did. Even in the midst of this, we are reaching into broken lives and we are proclaiming the truth that Christ Jesus is the only one that can heal. Christ Jesus is the only one that can truly remove the evil and the vicious lie that Satan creeps in and tries to announce to all of us that we're less than, that we're not worth it, that we'll never amount to anything. In times of evil and deceit, even if you feel like you've been sold out, God's plan of redemption still carries forward. That's the light. That, that's the light of the gospel. That's the light of Christ. That's the light that we try to shine even when it seems so dark. So how do we connect? We've got this guy that's been dreaming these crazy dreams. He's been brash and brazen enough to tell his brothers and sisters and even his parents, y'all are going to serve me one day. You're going to bow down to me. And now he finds himself sold. I want you to see very clearly that God still uses his people even if others do not understand. 
Yeah, I believe Joseph was a little brash and a little brazen and his proclamations. But God was planning something and working something through the life of G- G- Joseph that no one around him would understand. He was doing something in his life in spite of the brazes, in spite of the evil intention of his brothers that would ultimately bring redemption and salvation to his whole family in a physical sense and to us ultimately in a spiritual sense. There are going to be times when God calls you to do something and it's not going to make a bit of sense to you, but you know that God's put it in your heart to do it. He's put it in your, in, 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 in your life to do it. So you talk to somebody else about it. Hey, I believe God is putting this and I believe God's showing me this. And they're not going to understand either. And you're going to be put in a position, whether on a big scale or just a small scale, to say, you know what? I'm going to trust what God has put before me rather than the doubts of those around me. See, as a church, we face that right now. I believe that God has set us here to continue being a beacon of racial reconciliation and the power of the gospel in Fairburn. I believe that God has us situated right here where we are, where we can reach into different generations. We can reach into different economic statuses. We can reach into different cultural backgrounds for the single purpose of helping all of us know that Christ Jesus is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And you know, it doesn't make sense to a lot of people what we do here. I I was speaking with... um, I was speaking with a pastor um, not too long ago. Um, I met him at, at Bear Creek uh, Middle School um, as I was there uh, helping out and trying to figure out some better ways we can work and partner into our schools. And, and he pastors a, um, a mostly African-American congregation right here around Fairburn. And we were just talking a little bit about our church. He said, oh yeah, you're, you're, at, you're at First Baptist. That's, that's the white church over there by Landmark. I said, I mean, I, not really. Well, you're right by Landmark. I said, yeah. We're not really the white church either. And so we started talking about, and here's, here's what his question was to me. Here, honest question. How do you get black people and white people to worship together? And I said, I don't know. I show up every Sunday and they do because of what God has done. It doesn't make sense. In a world that wants to divide you and categorize you based on the color of your skin, based on the way you vote in November, based on the way that you approach finances, based on the, how much education you do or do not have. In a world that wants to classify you, the gospel comes in and says, no, no, we're together because Christ is bigger than that. God still uses churches like ours because he uses people like you and people like me to reach into each other's lives and demonstrate something bigger. Something greater, something beautiful, because God uses us. God didn't save you to sit on the sidelines. I had a good friend in seminary that was, he played college football at Mississippi State University in Starkville, Mississippi. He was the third string long snapper. You know how many games he played in in his four-year career? Zero. Zero. You know what he told me? I was only on the team to help the GPA. Yeah. 
God didn't save you to put you on the bench as the third string long snapper so that you could just help the team GPA. He saved you because he wants to use you. He wants to to draw out the gifts that he has given you. And maybe you come to me with a harebrained idea. You know, Pastor, I think that God has put this in my heart when we do this. I'm the what if guy. I'm going to ask you this question. Okay, what if we do that? What would it look like? Because I want to see each of us be used according to the glory of God in us. That makes us all better. So if you've got ideas, come talk to me. We'll, 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 fly, we'll flesh them out. The second thing we see here is that my salvation and your salvation was accomplished by one who suffered betrayal and rejection. Notice what happens to Joseph. Joseph is what we would call a type. He was one that we could look at his life and see how it directly pointed to the Christ that was to come. He was the one that was the son of the father that was rejected by his brothers, that was sold for pieces of silver and was cast off as a slave and was ultimately put out for dead. Your salvation was secured by one who left the house of the father, whose own brothers rejected him, who was sold for 30 pieces of silver, who was beat and crushed and rejected and put out for a trial. And when he ended up in the king's palace, he wasn't there as a servant. He was there as one that would lay down his own life for you. Oh man, the deceit that went into... The crucifixion of Christ. See, in times of evil and deceit, they don't undermine God's plan of redemption. It was in the greatest evil and the greatest deceit that God's plan of redemption was made fully known in Christ Jesus that they would take the very Son of God and and scourge Him and mock Him and put a false trial up there, bring up false claims, not even have a legitimate capital punishment claim against Him, but still He bore the reproach for you and for me that... (coughs) So that we wouldn't have to stand before the wrath of God. If you are saved today, it is because Christ Jesus was despised and rejected for you. He took one of his closest, one of the 12 that was with him all the time, and he washed his feet and he served him knowing that it would be his kiss that would hand him over to death. And you think you've been betrayed, Christ Jesus knows how you feel. You think you've been rejected. Christ Jesus knows how you feel. You you, you carry the burden of this life and this world. And Christ Jesus knows because he accomplished our salvation and his betrayal and his rejection and his death. See, the blood that was spilt on the cloak of Joseph was false. False. But the blood that was spilt on the robe of Christ was pure. And it was for you. And it was for me. And all of this because the love of the Father never ends. The love of the Father never ends. Jacob, at the end of this passage of Scripture, Israel, at the end of this passage of Scripture, tears his cloak and he mourns because his son has been taken from him. As a dad, I can't even begin to empathize with the feeling and the thought 
of losing a child. Some of you have experienced that. Some, some of you could, could hear the anguish in Jacob's voice and know what is going on in his heart. We had a man in our last church who had a son that had passed away. And it was hard. And I don't know that he ever fully healed from it. And the words that he would use to me, use with me time and time again were, children are supposed to bury their parents. Parents are not supposed to bury their children. And, 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 and Jacob, Israel here, is mourning in anguish. And to such a greater degree, God, our heavenly father, mourned with anguish so much so that he covered the entire world with blackness, with darkness, that no one could see the rejected son. Because in his anguish, he knew that his son, Christ Jesus, had become sin and bore the reproach and the wrath of God for us. But he did it because he loves you and you and you and you and me. And it's a love that doesn't end. It's a love that we can't escape. It's a love that does not stop because we messed up, because we, because we lied, because we cheated, because we, we cussed somebody out, because we cut somebody off in traffic. It's not a sin limit to the grace of God. He bestows it freely because his love never ends. So, so maybe, maybe Father's Day is a tough day for you because you don't have good memories of dad. And, and, and maybe hearing about God as a loving father, it's hard for you to, 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 to compute mentally and emotionally because you've got this baggage concerning who your father here was. I wish I knew the simple answer to say, hey, hey, come, come to Jesus and it'll all be all right. I, I don't know the simple answer, but here's what I do know. And all the failures that we as men portray because of how we are and have been treated as fathers, God himself does not fail. His love does not end. You don't have to behave to get it. He gives it because he loves you. You, 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 don't, have to, you don't have to make good grades. You don't have to earn enough. You don't have to trust. All you have to do is trust that Christ Jesus is your acceptance to the Father through his blood.